Welcome to the Breakfast Leadership Show, where we interview global thought leaders on business, leadership, and life. Here's your host, keynote speaker, best-selling author, and chief burnout officer of the Breakfast Leadership Network, Michael Levitt. Welcome back. I've got Greg Colburn online. Greg, how are you? I'm great. How are you, Michael? I am awesome. This, in my opinion, might be one of the most important conversations I've had on this show because it impacts so many people across the globe. So let's share a little bit about you and then we'll dive into this important conversation. Great. Thank you. Uh, well, I am a, a member of the faculty at the University of Washington in Seattle. Uh, I'm actually a second career academic. My first career was in finance. I was an investment banker and a private equity investor for about 17 years and um, decided I wanted to do something different and went back and got my PhD in public policy with a focus on housing policy and then was fortunate enough to land here uh, in Seattle at UW. And, uh, you know, I've spent the uh, last five years uh, teaching and, and conducting research on the housing and homelessness crisis that's evident in our city and many cities around the country. It's important work. And as we were chatting in the pre-show, and then I said, I better hit record. Otherwise, I'm going to waste the entire interview and our conversation. You know, most major cities across the globe have been dealing with this for some time, and it, it, it's getting worse. And in many cases, I'm, I'm seeing cases, obviously, in the times that I spend in Toronto and San Diego, those are two areas that it's well documented uh, that there is a, a, a crisis with homelessness. And in a lot of people, I think, you know, think of it as being a variety of different things. So why don't you, why don't you talk about, you know, the book specifically and, you know, because it, it, it chronicles the work that you've been doing, but, you know, but even before you do that, I always ask people that are authors, you know, why did you dedicate so much of your life and your time to release a book? Because it is a time consuming endeavor. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, my motivation for writing the book was um, when I, Literally, from the moment that I landed in Seattle, I got involved in a lot of community conversations around um, this topic, uh, which was great as someone who was new to the community. And, and it became pretty clear to me within the first year or two that we as a community, and that includes civic leaders, political leaders, just general citizen, citizenry, didn't really understand what was causing this crisis. We all knew there was a problem, uh, but diagnosing that, the, the root cause of it, uh, to me to seem, uh, seemed to me to be um, troubling or difficult. And my fear, and, the, and this fear has kind of been manifesting over the last couple of years, is that failure to properly diagnose um, the disease um, will lead to bad uh, prescriptions. And, and I feel like we've had kind of a scattershot approach here, and, and it's not just Seattle, it's, it's all over the place. Um, and, and failure to really center housing in this conversation leads to all these other conversations around um, behavioral health and drug use and mental illness and poverty and all these things that are really important. I would never suggest they aren't important. Um, but the purpose of the book is really to center housing in this um, conversation, because I firmly believe that if we don't figure out the housing side of this, we will not end this crisis. You know, one of the things that I've noticed, especially over the last few years, I'll pick on Toronto for a moment because it's where I live and is that the housing situation has become very, very costly for a lot of people. Uh, the condo building that I'm in, the condo, the price that uh, was paid when we acquired it several years ago 
um, is up 200% from just five years ago. And people can't afford a down payment. There's restrictions. And, and we're seeing this, you know, it reminds us back to uh, the Great Recession in 2007, 8, 9, where, you know, the mortgage crisis was really problematic and they tightened up the rules for a bit and it made it harder for people to get homes. And now, you know, people just simply can't afford a mortgage. So they're saying, okay, well, I, I got to pay rent. And then, well, the people that own those houses have big mortgages. So they're going to have to charge rent that will cover their mortgage payment. Um, I think there's a lot of misconception that a lot of landlords are making all this money from rent. And maybe some of them are if they were able to acquire the property or they had it in their inventory already. But ultimately, just the cost of housing is getting to the point where people that we would have never imagined could be flirting with becoming homeless is becoming a reality because they simply can't even afford to rent any place, much less own. No, it's, it's, it's exactly right. And, and um, you know, one of the things that I talk about a lot in my, in my public conversations around this is the homelessness crisis is the same as the housing crisis. They are not separate crises. It's one and the same. It's just the consequences are different. And so if you're a public school teacher in Seattle and you're struggling to pay rent because you make $60,000 a year in a terribly expensive city, you can figure it out. You can have a two-hour commute or you can just spend a big percentage of your income on housing and then obviously have less money left over for other things. Um, if you make $15,000 a year, that same situation might manifest itself as, as homelessness. And, and so um, what I tell people, because you know it's probably the same in Toronto because Toronto is a terribly expensive market, but if you go to a cocktail party or when we did before COVID, Housing costs are the number one thing. It's either I made this much money on my house or I can't buy a house or my kids can't find a place to live in Seattle because it's so expensive. And, and what we need to do is really understand that the, that issue that even all of us as, as professionals who, who have a livelihood that we're grateful for, um, creates, it creates struggles for us. It creates huge struggles if you're not fortunate enough to have a steady um, source of income that can afford housing. And so you're exactly right. And so when we separate those two crises, I think we do our community a disservice because it's easy to then blame people on the streets and then think about the housing crisis as something different when, in fact, it's the exact same thing. And a lot of people say, well, how do you fix it? And one of the challenges, and again, working in the housing sector for a bit of time uh, during my career, one of the things that happened, again, we'll pick on Toronto for a moment, but it's the same in, in many, many jurisdictions, is there just hasn't been enough housing built where you know, they, a certain section of housing that is going to be built by developers or a city or a state government, whatever, is saying, okay, we, we need to have these many homes built. Well, a lot of those builds you know, took place post-World War II, and then it dropped off. And then it really hasn't picked up to the levels that we saw. Meanwhile, the population has dramatically increased. We can look at the U.S., what the population is today compared to what it was 30 years ago. Dramatic increase. While, yes, there's been development and, and, and whatnot, and not to the levels of where people are. And Seattle is a great example. That is a destination location. There's a lot to be said about that area, not just because of that particular coffee place or that particular tech company that are, you know, is based out of that area. It, it, it 
drove a lot of demand for people to be in that part of the country or the world. And when you have demand, then all of a sudden supply dries up and then the costs go up. And then what we've seen, especially during this pandemic, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too, is as people were sent out and working remotely and then like, you know what i don't have to be in the city anymore so it's so expensive i'm going to move out a little bit because i shouldn't have a big commute anymore because i'm going to be allowed to work remotely well then the prices of those places that used to be affordable now aren't so now we've just made the problem even worse because there wasn't this new build of stuff people just moved out into other areas and it's really become even a bigger challenge than before it's a huge issue. And, and you mentioned the Great Recession before. And, you know, the, you know in, our, in the book, we focus on rental costs because that's typically the, you know, the market that people experiencing homelessness are facing. And so there's, there's a separate story on ownership and that, that has obviously gone parabolic as well. Um, but what's interesting is the, the, the overbuild of single family construction in, in the 2000s and the housing boom leads to this global financial crisis which leads to a seizing up of credit markets, which leads to far less um, credit availability for the development of housing, particularly multifamily housing, which we desperately need. And when you look at the numbers at the, uh, at the national level in the United States, I don't know the Canadian figures offhand, but I would assume the pattern is similar. In the United States, what you'll see is we had a huge deficit of housing or, or lack of housing development from 2010 to 2016 or so, way below historical um, standards. And we still had population growth. Right. And in, in coastal cities, we saw a huge migration of people to cities like Seattle, for example. Our population went uh, way up. And so we can trace at least the modern uh, rental crisis to this huge underbuilding. And then now we're trying to catch up. And people will say in Seattle, well, we've built a lot of housing. We have, but we haven't built near enough to accommodate all the people who want to uh, live and work here. And the problem is, is that when you import software developers for Amazon who are going to be well, compensated, they're going to find housing regardless. And so it's not the people moving here that are struggling. It's the people who have made this their home for decades and in many times generations who are now being pushed out because we haven't built enough housing. The people moving in can afford that housing and it pushes people down. And so um, the problem with this narrative, and, and I'm guilty of this as well, is we say we haven't built enough housing for the people who are moving here. Well, actually, they're doing just fine. <laughs> it's the people who've been here for a while that are getting pushed down. And, and that has really tragic consequences for the community for and, and, and the people who've called this home for a long time. And, and so, you know, failure to develop housing has huge, huge consequences for, for a, you know, a wide variety of, you know, multiple swaths of, of, of society. In the community that I'm in, uh, in my general area, because I live in some condo buildings, there's four buildings that are part of this particular complex, but there's a 10 to 20 year development plan where they're going to be building another 12 to 16 condo buildings, anywhere from maybe 20 to 30 or 40 stories high. So there's probably going to be an addition of anywhere from 10 to 15,000 additional people here. And of course, they're not building any new roads, which is going to make uh, Christmas time really entertaining around here because we're close to a mall too. So this is going to be awesome. Can't wait. But it the demand is there yeah they 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 know that people will want to move here but as you said and and there's a community here that you know is going to be impacted by that is some people that have like you said have been in this area their entire lives or maybe three or four generations 
are now getting priced out of their own community. And then they have to uproot and leave. And anybody that's ever moved away from where they grew up, that, that's disruptive. Um, even if you want to get out of that area, you know, like, you know, I want to go and do different things and explore the world and all of that. It's still disruptive. And people are choosing that. And I, I love that you brought up the, the people that are coming. They've got, you know, the resources to be able to move in without really any concerns. Uh, it's the people that have been here that are kind of getting kicked to the curb and, and kind of, and, um, I know it's kind of an abrupt statement, but that's how it feels. It's like you're getting kicked to the curb. Thanks, thanks for building this community. Now you can't live here anymore because you can't afford it. It just it seems so so unfair. And you know, I think that's where we as a community, you know, have to come around and figure out how do we address this. What are some things that we can do that's different than what we have been doing? And it goes back to what you said a few minutes ago about how we separate the the housing and the homelessness when it's actually it's 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 the same it's two sides of the same coin basically that's exactly right it's exactly right and and you know i think san francisco at least in the united states context is is um kind of exhibit a for what happens if you don't tend to this and we're we're you know they had a 10-year head start on us in terms of a tech boom and so we're in bad shape in seattle we're not in as bad a shape as san francisco and and the and the problem is is that not only are you going to see homelessness which we have um in you know in significant numbers in both communities um but basic services start to get challenged you in my opinion you can't have a sustainable quality community without school teachers and firefighters and service workers and all the people that make a city work. And, and the problem is, is I, I don't know how you can teach third grade in the San Francisco public schools making whatever they make, $60,000, $70,000 a year. The math doesn't work. And so um, it, it is a fundamental issue that communities have to address, and it's going to require a major, major investment, not only of dollars, but just commitment and a, and a willingness by the community to change the built environment. Because the current path that we're on is um, is it doesn't have a very uh, positive end game, and and I really worry about these expensive coastal cities in terms of how how do basic services end up getting delivered. I will say the University of Washington, Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley has had this issue. We're now having it at the University of Washington, where you know I have a good job and I've got a great employer, um, but I won't say my salary is is great compared to the housing costs here, and we are losing people all over the place. We just lost a couple that I know went to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor and tripled their standard of living. Another great public university and, and Berkeley has had this issue for a long time. They have just bled faculty members who could go to other regions of the country, continue to do their work and, and have a much higher standard of living. And so it's not that we're not shedding tears for college professors here, but the point is that this issue has a cascading effect on, on its institutions and, uh, and failure to address it will, um, will, will have big consequences. And not just from a housing standpoint, but just a way of life. And you know, it's well documented some of the challenges that the city of San Francisco is facing with increased crime because people are frustrated and and they can't afford things. And when you are pushed against the wall, you're going to make decisions that may not be in the best interest of society, but you're doing it for yourself. And again, not condoning crime by any stretch, but that's the reason why people do a lot of things is because they have no other option. They have no other choices. And when you start losing those essential workers, the educators, school teachers, the police, fire, all of those people start leaving, then you don't have 
enough to cover those needs. And then, of course, as crime and other challenges and social services needs increase, you don't have the resources. It gets worse. You have yourself just an absolute mess. And it's because you know, people need to be able to afford to live. We're not saying you're going to be in the you know, deluxe mansion type of thing. If you're successful and you're able to uh, do things to end up in that situation, congratulations. That's, you know, everyone's definition of success is different. But uh, just having the basic ability to afford to live so you can choose where you want to live and, and practice your vocation, whether it's an educator or a service person or whatever the case may be, every community needs that. And, um, you know, I know people, you know, and I grew up in Michigan, so uh, hopefully those professors are prepared for winter, but uh, they'll, they'll adjust. But um, I never did. And I was born there. So uh, right. but at the end of the day, it, it's, uh, it's Ann Arbor's win, but that that is a talent loss, and as you said, we're seeing that in great areas. And you could have a booming city all of a sudden become a declining city, and you're like, "Well, what happened?" Well, you know, we, the the lines are pointing in a particular direction, and I, it, it's going to take different thinking. And I think that's where your book comes in so excellent. Because it's a situation where you're mail, you're basically laying it all out. Here's here's how we've been looking at the situation wrong. Here's the things we can do to address. Let's start focusing on that from you know a state level, country level, global level to make it possible for people to afford where their bed is. And right now, in many cases, that's just not possible for people. No, that's that's right, and and um. You know, the fundamental argument we make in the book is, is the question we try to answer is what explains regional variation, meaning why does Seattle have five times the rate of homelessness of Chicago? I think that would surprise a lot of people. And, and what we demonstrate in the book is not that these individual factors of mental illness, um, drug addiction, poverty don't matter. They absolutely do. But the point is, is that we don't have a disproportionate number of people with those conditions in Seattle, San Francisco, L.A., New York, Boston, Washington, D.C., Right? There are people with these vulnerabilities in every community around the country. The point is, is that those vulnerabilities manifest themselves as homelessness in some places, but not others. And so Detroit is the most impoverished city in the country, and it has a far lower rate of homelessness than our coastal cities. Yet we know that poverty causes homelessness. So it's a weird result. Analytically, it's kind of a weird thing. It's hard to wrap your mind around that. And so Detroit has way more poverty than Seattle does. We have lots more homelessness. Why? Because housing is terribly expensive. And if you're vulnerable in Seattle, does those vulnerabilities identify you as someone who's likely to experience homelessness? And so the fact that when we see someone experiencing mental illness on the street in Seattle, and I see it every day when I'm walking around in the city, it's easy for us to draw a link between mental illness and homelessness. When in fact, what's, what's happening is, is that we have a scarce scarcity of housing and therefore who's likely to not get that housing? Someone who has this particular vulnerability. And the other thing that's really, really important is when we encounter someone on the street who's addicted or mentally ill, it's very likely that the um, experience of homelessness contributes to that crisis. Homelessness is terribly traumatic. The level of physical and sexual abuse, it's, it's, it's horrific. And so the fact that someone would develop mental illness living on the street for six months or a year shouldn't surprise anyone. It's a natural human response to that. I also tell people that if I were experiencing unsheltered homelessness, I would probably medicate as well because it's a really unpleasant way to go through life. And it would be more than probably just a glass of red wine, which is my current <laughs> mode of, of, of medication. So um, 
you know, the cause and effect arrows go in both directions. Those conditions can produce homelessness, but homelessness can also produce those conditions. And so rather than continuing to focus and obsess over these issues, and we need to provide treatment. I'm not, people say, well, Greg, you don't believe in treatment. I absolutely do. I think we have a moral obligation to provide treatment, but I think we're fooling ourselves if we think that we can solve homelessness by treating our way out of it. We can't. Unless we address the housing shortage, we'll, we'll struggle to fix this. Yeah. And that's the key is we need to build more housing, a lot of it, um, because you know, the United States has been for centuries a destination. It's a place where, you know, from Ellis Island, when all the immigrants come over from, you know, for hundreds of years, people want to be here because there's opportunity, there's hope and things like that. And then when they get here, they, they go, what in the world? And we shouldn't have that. There's no, there's no reason for it. So we need to build housing that is safe, affordable, and, and provide opportunities for people to thrive and shine wherever they want to live, whether it's Chicago, Detroit, Seattle, Biloxi, San Diego, Sacramento, Phoenix, wherever. Uh, you notice I didn't note, mention the cold cities and all that. Other than Chicago. <laughs> I, wor I worked and lived in Chicago for six years. That is a cold that is unmatched other than the North Pole. Uh, but it's, it, it's definitely uh, a time for, for all of us to come together and address one thing. And, you know, and we address the housing challenges and we, we correct the, the path that we're going on with that. Then we'll notice improvements in other areas as well. So, Greg, I've loved this conversation. Where can people find out more about you, this awesome book, and the amazing work you do? Um, well, the book is called Homelessness is a Housing Problem. It's published by University of California Press. You can find it uh, where you find your books, uh, including this, uh, this small company in Seattle called Amazon. They do a good job of that. Um, and I'm found on Twitter at, at, I think it's at Colburn Greg. I should confirm. I should know that offhand. Uh, I'm not a huge Twitter person, but... Um, Yep. At Colburn Greg, capital C on Colburn and Greg, G-R-E-G-G. -G. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, definitely. And I'll have all that information in the show notes. So again, Greg, thank you so much for this work in the book and uh, this very, very important work that you're doing. It, it will change lives in the world uh, if people just follow the guidelines that you lay out in the book. So again, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Breakfast Leadership Show, part of The Breakfast Leadership Network. Visit breakfastleadership.com for tips on empowering your business and your life.